Welcome to Reconvene 2022, presented by our partner, Appfolio Investment Management, an all-in-one solution empowering general partners to streamline real estate investment management. I'm Moses Kagan. The following conversation is with Stephanie Copeland of Four Points Funding. All right, so um, I want to get started today. First of all, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, and I want to I want to pick up the conversation that we were just having in the green room. Um, but before before I do, um, I'd like to kind of uh, to situate everyone here so to help them understand kind of like the scope of what you're doing at Four Points. Sure. It's fascinating, and you're doing big things. Yeah. And so let's 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 hear from from you what what you're working on. Sure. So. Um, First of all, this has been really fun. So thanks for inviting me. And I've met a ton of people that I really uh, have learned a lot from. So I appreciate that quite a bit. We are, um, Four Points Funding is a, we're a private equity fund developer, not intending to be a developer. And we're building in Colorado, we're building um, over the last two and a half years, about $400 million worth of properties, about a thousand units across uh, markets outside of the Denver metro area. So think about, markets like Durango or um, Glenwood Springs, which is outside of Aspen, um, Estes Park, near Rocky Mountain National Park. And we're doing this kind of very quickly and all at once um, because of the investor base that we have, but also because we had this um, notion that if you're gonna build one, why not build a lot at one time and create some scale on the platform? You know, why not like learn from each, each other from what you're building and use you know similar general contractors like but just really really find the scale and I think I think it was around yesterday you said you know the systems orientation around scale is really important and that's my entire background and I can't stress enough how how beneficial that's been for us um, to see around the corners I love that and I just maybe want to I, I, I want to uh, add to, the, to what you just said a little bit. So there is, for, for those who don't know, there's like a major housing crisis in these rural or semi-rural Colorado uh, mountain towns, rural, rural towns, let's call it, and where people haven't really built in a very long time, but there's this massive influx of, of new residents drawn by the lifestyle of Skiing, in, outdoor rec, uh, downhill uh, mountain biking, et cetera. And so this problem exists of these local people who have whatever their income level is are suddenly competing for housing with a lot of new residents who maybe can outcompete them. And so now, w w what do you do? And the and the, the the answer has always been, okay, let's build subsidized housing, and or and developers are naturally going to fall to, hey, do I get enough incentive to make it worthwhile to buy housing that people can afford at you know eighty percent of the median income or sixty percent of the median income. Or do I build, you know, at a thousand bucks a square foot and sell it for five thousand a square foot, and develop luxury? So you have this kind of barbell situation going on in most of these markets, and they're they're greatly, greatly underserved. It's not just 15 units; it's thousands of units in many of these markets that are required to support teachers, nurses, um, workforce, hospitality, etc. It's not it's not all lifties and and waitresses. You know, it's it's a spectrum, and so. What also happened was so much of the low-income housing that was built, people made too much to live there, but not enough to buy you know, their $2 million starter condo you know, on the lift, which is, which is uh, perverse. And, and, and self, it's, it reinforces a bad spiral economically just across the board. So, I, so I, I, we're going to come back to this kind of, uh, to, to use maybe a, a term that 
uh, uh, people here may or may not like, but it, there, there is kind of like a social impact thing going on here, which I think has been helpful to your business. So, but before we just dive into how you got here, just so you're building about a thousand units of this kind of non-deed restricted. 1,284. 12, wow. <laughs> um, uh, market, market rate apartments, but attainable market rate apartments in these, in these, um, in these rural housing starved, uh, housing starved markets. So to me, from the outside, I'm going, how does a human being get herself into position within a couple of years to do something that is that audacious? Like that, that bold, um, and so maybe maybe we could maybe we could dig into that. Like, how did you find yourself two and a half, three years ago, yeah. doing this? Yeah, it's it, isn't it funny when people say, you know, did you always know you wanted to do this or that? <laughs> and I've always just tripped my way into like stupid stuff. And and um, I spent I am uh, unfortunately now kind of one of the older people in the room, and I spent. A lot of I spent about 30 years in the telecom sector building infrastructure, so building fiber and data centers and um, and fiber tower, or cell towers and um, and repeaters, et cetera. And and that background of just kind of building and putting annuity on top of it was really familiar to me. So I, I we took a company public in 14, and I retired in 2016. Had no intention of doing anything else. And I think you got pulled into public service I to did. some extent, right? Yeah, so the governor of Colorado said, hey, would you run economic development for me for my last two years of my administration? And so I went to work for the government, which was like something I never thought I would do. But during that tenure, uh, the Opportunity Zone legislation was enacted. And that legislation just really intrigued me from an interest standpoint. I'm like, this is like really good use of public policy. It's not perfect legislation, but it's a really good intersection to attract capital. And I've always said, you know, if I could, I think I can take advantage of this. I designated the zones, I knew the markets, um, and I had a lot of operational background of running big P&Ls. I think I can do this. Um, I'm pretty, I think, I think I can build it. I'm not sure if we'll make any money. Um, and if, and, and most of the time we're just talking about, I have, I'm so neurotic, I have no idea whether we're gonna make any money at all. Um, <clears throat> I'm really hoping. Um, but the, uh, uh, so coming out of that, a uh, couple guys and I got together and we raised this fund. And, and interestingly, during my tenure as a governor and just also um, part of some of my social network, I, I had some support from a large family office in Denver that put a ton of money, kind of friendly money on our balance sheet. So allowed us to go out and have the conviction to build it at scale. So I wanna I wanna dig into that for a second. So um, one of the things that you probably heard me talk about certainly yesterday and, and on Twitter is um, I wrestle to a large extent with like with 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 our business, like um, is what we're doing net socially positive? And to be honest, for my personal business, like I, it depends on the day whether I think it is or not. <laughs> um, uh, but in talking to Stephanie, one of the things that, that impressed me, and it, and it actually um, uh, resonates with what, what Mario and Brian were talking about yesterday, is that if you're doing something that is actually um, uh, net, socially net positive, then there are forces that can propel you uh, instead of trying to inhibit you. And, uh, and obviously, Brian and Mario have, have, have leveraged that in South Carolina. And, and, and this, in this, let's call it a friendly 
investment in your GP entity from a very large, socially conscious family office is a perfect example of that sort of, yep. of, the, of the propulsion that you can get when you're doing something that's obvious, you know. Yeah, and 100%, and they didn't come to us and say, hey, you're gonna have, you're gonna, you're gonna create the most alpha over the next 10 years, we're gonna give you this money. That wasn't their mission. There was, hey, we wanna catalyze you to have impact in these areas. And if you make some money, that's great. That's, uh, uh, and we're not an impact fund. We're not a, um, that wasn't what we were setting out to do. We just know that putting more supply in the market is going to be socially uh, good. And it's going to create some more balance in these markets. And so that family office, and, and it's the largest family in the US, um, uh, and they may or may not um, own some stores <laughs> that are wrecking some of these small towns as well, but, um, but they are, uh, that's not true. They, it's not true. Um, but they are really, they are really a, a turning point for us and, and have been, uh, it gave us the more, more than the money because we don't tap it that often. We just don't want to spend money on capital we don't need. It gave us the confidence to go out and secure and move very, very fast. And if those of you that don't, that work in opportunity zones or have ever done this, you have to deploy capital very quickly. You're really set up. Like the incentive is get economic activity moving very, very quickly. And so that catalyst helped us just go. Yeah. So, so I want to dig into how, like, how did you make it go? So you said, you, you kind of, you mentioned it, maybe you said a sentence. You, you, you hooked up with some guys and you raised a fund. I want to know like, there, clearly, there was some, there was a lot of thought that went into that. You're not the kind of person who does things without thinking about it. Um, I, I, I know. Um, so, so who were these people? How did you meet them? And how did you decide that these were the particular people that you wanted to work with? So that's, I think that's a really interesting question. During when I was working for the governor, we were doing a lot of work across the state and trying to really um, disperse the population. The Col Colorado, in the whole state, there's 5.7 million people. It is a tiny population. Four million of them live in a very small area, and the rest of the state is fairly, um, is fairly rural and spread out. And, um, but we have this perverse, we have Aspen, we have Vail, we have these Telluride, we have these very, very wealthy areas in those rural areas. And, um, and we were trying to create more economic activity that would actually ground people in these areas. So we were doing entrepreneurship programs. And I ran into these guys out of Steamboat who um, had been doing real estate across the, they just doing distressed real estate across the Western Slope. And through the Opportunity Zone designation, I was working with them a lot to help me understand where are the best places to catalyze activity. That's where I met them. And they were, there were three things that were so great about finding the right partners. One, I trust them implicitly. And I don't ever feel like there's ever a zero-sum game between us, and that's a big deal to me. Um, secondly, they work their asses off, but they don't, this is, they're not, um, that's not where they get their identity. Like they are very hardworking, but they also know, hey, this is just money. Like, you know, and that relaxes me a ton. And the third, they are super, super kind people, but very smart. And I didn't ever think I would find those kind of partners. And when you find that, you just know. And so we started a fund and, um, and it was hilarious at first. I mean, Hilarious. We had some of the most embarrassing fundraising meetings I've ever, <laughs> I've ever had. I've had some of those. Oh my God. <laughs> I walked out. And, um, but we, it just started slowly picking up. And, um, and as Opportunity Zones became more mainstream, more people knew about it, more people started seeking us. And then we were, um, 
And then we also worked with the Sorensen Impact Center out of Utah, and they did this Forbes article on us, and that just triggered things. So, okay, so so you meet these guys, you 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 um, you join up together, you know from pretty early on that this that this is going to be the model. We're going to yep. build workforce housing in these in these rural areas. Okay, um, and. How um, how did you like um, in terms of the, like the nuts and bolts of structuring? Um, this, these are this is a a commingled fund or multiple commingled funds? It's multiple commingled funds. Okay, so you did the first one, started to put it out, Correct. and then raised more. Yeah. Okay, um, and now how are you? Um, do you have the, the, so there's there's the funds, and then there's this opco, right? Are you? Um, are you doing self-managing, or are you, uh, or are you hiring third-party management for this stuff? We're we're hiring. We're just becoming operational now for many of our projects, but we're hiring third-party property managers. Mm -hmm. But I'm also I've just hired two asset managers because I don't know how good property managers are, and I'm I am neurotic. Right. So I want. Yeah, you got to be all over the. I want to extract as much as much contribution margin out of these as I can. That makes sense to me, and that, so I want to talk about just again to getting to getting into the nuts and bolts because, like, I mean, I've built some small buildings before. I can't even imagine building one big one, and you're building a whole bunch of big ones in disparate areas with different zoning and different local personalities. How did you manage that process? Like, who? What is going on day to day in your team to allow you to build at that scale? Um, so. The thing that I liked about building in Colorado and what was so serendipitous for me was working for the governor, I got to know these rural markets really well. I got to know the town managers. I got to know the commissioners. They trusted me as someone that was trying to help them. And that's why I focused on these markets because I had a unique advantage that maybe somebody else wouldn't have, even though they could do the same things. And so that hasn't been the hard part. Um, the hard part isn't been going through the different process. It's actually good storytelling, you know, like, like um, I think in one of our markets um, uh, at a town council meeting, I was, I'm a, I was called a liar and a money-grubbing whore. And, um, <laughs> and I mean, so I'm sorry funny. for laughing. No, I mean, it's, it's just, it's outrageous. It was, it's funny. And then, and, but in other markets, like they're like, you know, they throw you a ticker tape parade. So it's just, that's actually good fodder for storytelling. It's just knowing that you're go, you can't assume anything. You're just going in knowing that, hey, this is what I'm going to have to go through. And some of the entitlement processes have taken three months, some have taken two years. And we knew that the thing with opportunity zones that's a little harder is that you do have to have the projects, I do anyway, before you raise capital, because you don't want this to be, just trust me, I'll find the right things. And, um, and I don't want the perverse incentive to be sitting on a lot of capital and finding stuff that, that we don't really like. Right. Um, so we've been sourcing and deploying at the same time. Yeah, which is, I mean, this, and this is like the, the, the classic chicken and the egg thing that we always talk about here, which is like the, the how, do you, how do you balance the two without getting out of balance and, right. and screwed up. Um, is there one architecture firm that you guys have building all of them, or, is it, or did you have to clump together a bunch of different ones? Or? We have, um, so first, the first two buildings that we did, we hired a fee-for-service developer, and that developer has an architect on, on staff, which is great. Because we were doing another seven, we said, why don't you guys come work for us as contractors? We'll just pay you as part of our DevCo, and we'll vest interest in the properties into you. So we created a development team. And within that development team, there's an architect in the team. 
but we now hire different architects that are kind of built to suit for that area. I don't want an architect that doesn't understand the soils in our area. I don't want an architect that doesn't understand the local GCs in that area. So we've been hiring local. We, we've, what we found is that now we've got a few that we trust that we can now move across. Yeah. And we have one property management team that we love that we're using across the portfolio, majority. And, then, and again, so, so and you're dealing with local GCs for the most part. In Correct. Each and I can imagine that, I mean, you're not going to say anything mean about any of the individual GCs, but I imagine the quality of the of the companies you're working with varies considerably. Yeah, and it's the, my the, one of my development partners. He said he goes, you know, he's like these guys are these guys are horrible. This one one team we're working on. I'm like, yeah, but they saved us a lot of money, and I, that can buy you a lot of aspirin. So <laughs> um, we, but we, you can like, there's some developers you can just or some GCs you can just set and forget, and some that you just manage change orders like every second of every day. And they're, you're like, I have a GMP and, and nothing changed. Yeah, they don't um, care. <laughs> right. And it's cost plus, so I get the savings, right? Yeah, yeah. They, it's weird. It's, it, but that you just manage through it. That's business. Right. And so you, and you have a team that's helping you with this. It's not just Absolutely. all on you. No. God, oh, God, no. Yeah. yeah. No, I have a team. I have a great, I have uh, four very good senior development leads, one of which is a chief estimator for us. And that was the other thing. I, if I can do seven at once, now I get scale out of one person that's across multiple projects. It saves us a tremendous amount of money. And we're going at the same time, which means I also have banking relationships that look to lever across properties. I can't cross-collateralize them, but they trust us and they understand our structure. So just not nailing down those hurdles, particularly as a person that has never developed um, and has no track record of this, it was, it's really important for me to bring some scale to the business and bring relationships across properties. You know, it's... Um this is going to be really embarrassing, I'm going to admit right now. One of the more interesting books I've read about real estate is Donald Trump's Think Big and Kick Ass. And you guys all know what I, what I think about it. But, and, and I'm sure a ghostwriter wrote it. But one of the interesting arguments in there, and I think I'm hearing it from you now, is basically that in some ways having a big audacious goal that brings scale is in some, can actually be easier in some ways than trying to, to, to fight little battles. Oh, I mean... With humility, absolutely. So opposite of Donald Trump, but sorry. <laughs> I, um, that um, with humility is the factor. But I, in telecom, we spent billions of dollars. I mean, we we started a company called Level Three, and we had a five billion dollar seed check into our company <laughs> to build eighteen thousand miles of fiber. It is so much easier to deploy five billion dollars than it is to deploy a million dollars. It's way easier, and I think that's why I like the scale. That's really interesting. Okay, so you're now, so we, we kind of have a sense for, for, for what's going on internally now, what, you, what the goal is and, and, and how you're, um, you're operationalizing it. So now let's talk about the current world that we're living in because obviously you, just like all the rest of us, have projects in progress and you uh, set them in motion in one world and obviously we're, we, we seem to, to be moving into a different world. Um, I want to I want to I want to talk about how you're thinking about that. Yeah, it's um, it, so just to set a little bit of context. We started our first two properties, about 200 units between two properties, um, in early 2020, and we financed them. We got them financed in the early summer of 2021. One of them I locked in at 2.97 percent, 40 year, 80 percent loan to cost HUD loan. Like I'm. Brilliant. That's like, the best leverage I mean, you come can on. Imagine. Like, yeah. how smart am I? The other, and the other one is. Very. Uh, yeah, super. <laughs> Look at me. And by the way, uh, um, 
fast forward a year from now, we're, you know, we're 400 basis points above that. I don't, the HUD doesn't look the same to me like it looked a year ago. And I'm at the finish line of trying to finance another HUD loan in another property. And I'm thinking, I, I should not lock in right now. That's like, oh my God, is just telling me should not lock in. But how do you change course when you're so convicted? And one, and the thing that I've learned, and I think I've learned a lot from you guys from hearing people talk is just uh, keep looking at the hand you're dealt constantly and change your game plan if it's not working for you. Like don't, I don't rely on the game plan we used a year ago. We're, we're long-term owners, so I've got a little bit of, of runway to course correct. But if I lock in right now at 6%, I just, I just closed on a loan yesterday for property in Durango. It's 6.2% for three years, and I'm just gonna pray that I can refi it at a, at a lower rate. Um, but I've been through so many economic cycles that you can never count on the past predicting the future. You have to constantly look at where, where your hand is dealt. And that means like, there was someone yesterday was talking like, like, are there other ways to monetize the properties that can create more, you know, more cash flow? Are there other ways to reduce costs that can do this? It's not like, those are the things I can control back to sure. what we were talking about. I can control those things. I can't control interest rates, but I can shift the way I'm financially engineering the properties. Yeah, I think I want to I want to pull that point out to make it explicit. I think one of the things that I've always wrestled with in my career, many of you guys have heard me sort of harping on this on Twitter is um, there are a, a, there's a, a series of elements in any project that you can control. Your underwriting, what are the construction costs, what do you think but there's there are the all of us in real estate are are as I call it sort of like hostage to certain forces that we absolutely cannot control. Interest rates being the one that's that's on all of our minds right now, but also the rental market. Um, so you, you what what I what I have learned to do is to talk to investors specifically about what we can control and also what we can't because because. To, to, to pretend that you can control these forces is crazy, and by the way, has a way of making you look very foolish when it turns out that you actually can't control them. Um, so, I, so I like, the, so this emphasis that you're just putting on, look, like here's what I can do, and, he, and then there's a bunch of stuff that I can't do. Um, but I think one thing that, that, that maybe distinguishes your model um, is that because you've got this opportunity zone and therefore long-term capitalization, you don't have to be worried about what is your exit next year or whatever. And I don't, I, so I don't have to worry about that, but I also, I'm constantly faced with investors that are used to investing in merchant build, you know, flips, and they're looking at, well, this is 25% IRR. I'm like, yeah, that was over three years, and, you know, and, and my equity multiple is going to be X or Y, and, and I also don't, I also think about, I look more at how much cash flow can I generate from the property versus the exit as being a more important kind of balance on how much value can I create in the projects. But the thing that you said that's really important is like, you can try to see around the corners, but there's no way anyone could have predicted that we'd be, you know, and the spreads are widening. So it's, I, I'm, and, and by the way, I'm, I have a degree in German, so I have no degree, I have no, I have no financial background. Um, I was... I was a German cello plating swimmer, you know, in high school. Like, I, people were not lining up to ask for my financial advice. And, and um, uh, but I've learned so much from just the execution that's gone on in the market. Like, how do you engineer capital such that you set yourself up to take advantage of things when they do arise? So back to, do I lock in for 40 years today? Or do I, do I bet on the con that I'm probably going to be able to take advantage of something lower in the next three or four years? Um, uh, that I should take advantage of. Those are things you, you can't control, but uh, I don't think anyone would would say that they know what, you know, 
Powell's going to say next quarter. I mean, we kind of can predict it. It's going to be priced in, but you can't, we really don't know. And if we did, people would have made a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, well, just, as I, I mean, you just go be a bond trader. Like, if you, <laughs> like what do you, you don't have to mess around with building a bunch of stuff in rural Colorado. Right? Like, no, absolutely. <laughs> right. So I wanted to, I mean, there's kind of maybe an elephant in the room, which is to say that, like, uh, there's not a lot of women in this, in the position that you... Wait, what? <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of, not a lot of women in the position that you find, in which you find yourself. And so I maybe want to ask you, like, first of all, how do you think you found yourself in this position? And we heard you did a bunch of awesome stuff before that, but like, why you? And also, what do you think is sort of contributing to the fact that we, that, 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 it, that this industry is so, so male? Well, it's, so I have no idea how, I, I think, I, like I said earlier, I just, people always said, Stephanie, you'll kind of put your hand up when, you know, when, hey, you want to go, want to do this? Sure, I'll go do that. You know, I, I've just done hard things that other people didn't want to do. And this one, not a lot of people were kind of flooding in to do housing in rural Colorado, which I like, because then I have less competition and I can actually have a symbiotic, you know, good impact, but also make money. Um, so I think that, what I will say, I'm 55 years old, and I should have done this 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, because it's, a, it's the most fun I've ever had. It has the most fulfilling thing, but I didn't have the confidence to do it. And I think that that, again, I'm not trying to say that all women are the same. I'm certainly more neurotic than most and and maybe more dumb than many, um, but... The, Doubtful. <clears throat> no, for sure. And And... I think that we, we don't inherently have the same confidence. I was listening to the speakers yesterday and I'm like, God, they're so confident and it's, and it's so calm and I am constantly worried about, am I gonna be broke? Am I gonna be homeless? You know, am I gonna have to move to Santa Monica and live on the boardwalk, you know? And I mean, and, and it's, um, I was telling Moses, I, um, I was, for 10 years in my 30s, I every day would look at a 10-year discounted cash flow statement for myself to see if I got fired, how long could I live? Because I'm, I don't have a job, you know? And I think that is more, I think that's, there's more of a tendency for women to have less confidence for, than for men. That is not homogeneously true. And I, please, I want more women to have more confidence because it's good for all of us. It's good for all of the men in the room if we're all kind of creating a bigger economy. And... And so the, the only reason I, I think at 55, and now I was 51 when we started this whole thing, was because I had this catalytic investor that came out and said, we, we believe in you. And I've had these partners, two male partners, that are just unbelievably supportive and have constantly instilled confidence. And like, hey, if you make a mistake, we all do. For women, I think it is a slightly more embarrassing when you make a mistake than for men. We just we just always feel a little more fraudulent. And I'm not saying that that doesn't occur in both genders, but I do think that that's, just, that's there. And last thing I would say, I don't feel like a victim. I don't feel like there's been anything wrong with this. I was having um, uh, dinner and some drinks with a few friends last night, and I don't feel like an like this hyper feminist, but I, I, I do see really positive changes going on with current generations of really empowering and enabling that. And if, um, I'm, I'm glad to see it, but it's, it took me a long, long time. And I would just encourage any women that are trying, you can absolutely do this. And investors will love your authenticity and love the fact that you're really worried about things. <laughs> they really will. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I think that that's, uh, I hope a lot of people yeah. hit, hear that and take it to heart. 
I want to I want to ask it's and, and it's it's maybe a, a bit risky in light of what we've just been talking about with the, with the economy. But I want to um, I want to ask you um, what what do you see this business Four Points looking like like ten years from now, twenty years from now? Do you think you'll be continuing to build housing in these rural Colorado markets? Expand? What do you think? You know, it's uh, so we have I've got four we've got four kind of. I'll call them principals on our team that work for us that do analytics and fundraising and and communications, et cetera, and they're all super talented. And one of the things that my partner Chris and I talked about quite a bit is we are, again, emphasizing my age, we are I don't want to I don't want to do this and then retire and shut the firm down. What I'd like to do is have these people take over for what we're doing and we'll take a step back. So I want to build an enduring platform to continue to facilitate um, this this expertise that we've that we've generated. I'm not sure whether that means housing in rural Colorado or if it means um, housing in Idaho or or some other mechanism. But the platform for building this and really shutting down the supply demand imbalance is important to me. And let me ask, like, in, concretely, because I mean, I think all of us, I, I certainly have have fantasies about no, about, our, my, about my platform continuing, but the question is, and what I think about daily is like, what does that actually mean? Like, do you, does it mean, um, are, are you thinking about hiring young people and mentoring them in a way that, yeah, and, and specifically picking people who have potentially the ability to take over from you? The answer is yes, and I shall be more specific. The, the And they're all men right now, and we are trying to find, we have one person I'm interviewing right now that I'd like to bring on board and have her become um, a partner and then become a managing partner. And um, what I'd like to do is, again, perpetuate the firm so that it is building, it's, it's a platform that now has an investor base and can continue. Um, the reason I'm hedging a little bit on my personal involvement is that I probably, at 65, you know, at 62, 63, will not want to be doing what I'm doing right now. And the other important thing about this is does our playbook work in 10 years? And can we shift it enough such that, um, that it will work, and that's what we're trying to build. Like, do we have, you know, do we shift to value add? Do we shift to um, uh, rehab? Do we shift to different things? Do we shift to um, a different financing mechanism? Uh, you know, a, a more bonded structure financing, financing mechanism that, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I want to build a platform to enable it, for sure. I think that that, um, that 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 tone of knowing where you want to go, but not exactly knowing how you're going to get there is actually like, I think generalizable across like many of us here. And I think that that's, that's actually where I want to leave it today. So thank you, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Thanks. For, thank you.